let's go to 1 Timothy chapter number 1. Not too long ago, we taught a lesson entitled Introducing 1 Timothy. And this evening in chapter 1, I want to teach verses 3 through 11, but I'm only going to read now verses 3, 4, and 5. As I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So let's have a word of prayer. Fathers, we look into the scriptures this evening, speak to all of our hearts. We are so grateful that <clears throat> your Bible provides clarity. And Lord, where there is anything that's complex, we pray that you help us to explain it. We're so glad you gave your son to die on the cross for our sin and raised him from the dead. So be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is filled with a lot of advice, and warnings, and encouragement. Timothy is told not to allow people to despise his youth. That is to say, just because you're young, that doesn't mean that you aren't worthy of the calling on your life and that you aren't a person who can walk in wisdom. So we should never think that just because someone is younger that God can't use them. The Bible is filled with young people who successfully followed God and obeyed him. We also explained to you that Timothy was left in this area of Ephesus. We looked at what that revival was about there. Multitudes of people coming to God, supernatural things taking place. And out of those many disciples, there was a congregation, so a pastor was needed. And this is why in verse 3, Paul says, I ask you to stay there. Now, Ephesus was a place where the goddess Diana was worshipped. And so it was not a Christian city. It was a pagan city. And these people were feverishly devoted to their God, so much so that they created a riot because Paul was leading so many people to the Lord. But he was left there, according to verse 3, to teach no other doctrine. Now you'll notice in chapter number 6 that it says in verse number 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is accord, according to godliness, he is proud. So there is a particular teaching that Paul gave to Timothy that he wanted Timothy to impart to the believers that are in, were in Ephesus. All of us have had spiritual mothers and fathers. We've all had teachers in Christ. But a spiritual mom and dad is different. A teacher is just anybody who comes along and shares the word of God and ministers it to you. But a spiritual mom or dad is someone who usually models that word for you. And they help you with difficulties. They help you with, with uh, your understanding of the scripture in your application of that word. And when you fall or err, unlike an instructor or a teacher, that spiritual mom or dad is going to love you through all of that. That's one of the differences. And in verse 3, 
that no other doctrine means what you learn from me, pass on to them. Now, there are a lot of different churches, there are a lot of different movements, unaffiliated churches, independent churches, denominational fellowships. All of the pastors in those, those churches desire to teach what they believe. And what they believe is called doctrine, it's teaching. And the reason things are imparted to the congregation is because you want the congregation to be able to walk in some sort of unity. And when you're dealing with the kinds of Bible studies we have, like this one where you have a number of churches represented, then you understand there are certain core doctrinal truths that no matter what church a person attends have to be believed. There's no doubt you have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. If you don't believe that, you're going to struggle with, with listening to me. You have to believe that Jesus lived in this world without sin. He never made a mistake, never had to apologize to anybody. That's why he was the Lamb of God who uh, was able to die on the cross. He was literally crucified. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And the Bible says he ascended to heaven, and one day he's going to judge all of this because he's coming back. Those are indisputable truths. Those are doctrinal principles that any fellowship that calls itself a church should believe. And when you find those doctrinal principles not believed there, then you have to wonder what's the point of you being there. If the truth of God's word isn't being imparted. This is why he tells them in verse 4, don't give heed to fables. What is a fable? Something that is not based in reality. Remember the old Aesop fables? Stories about animals that could talk and everything? There are different kinds of fables. Later on in Titus, Paul talks about Jewish fables. There are a lot of Jewish apocryphal books. All kinds of stories and tales that are not based in reality at all. And then he talks about endless genealogies. The Greeks and the Romans were very interested in where they came from. And they loved to try to trace their ancestry back to mythological people. People wanted to show that they came from Hercules. See? Or they had some kind of tie to Zeus or Jupiter. But even from a natural side, there are some people who wanted to show that their ancestry goes back to certain heroic characters. But our genealogy, that's not the most important thing in planet, planet Earth. We all know we come from Adam and Eve. And even if you can trace your genealogy back 25 generations, you can't get to Adam and Eve. At some point, you're going to start speculating. Yeah, you're going to start making stuff up. I mean, you, you'll tell people that you're, 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 you're in your ancestry are mostly people who were royalty and princes. You might have horse thieves back there. You don't know. You can't, you can't go back in time and know what all is back there, you see. Myself, I can only go back about seven or eight uh, generations, and that's only because then it was the time of slavery. So who knows what direction everybody went into. You know? But I have met people who have shown me on paper that they could trace their name back to the Reformation period. I think that's great if you can. But listen to what Paul says. Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And then he tells us the reason. They minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. 
if anybody is going to come up with uh, ancestral stories and things like that that don't produce faith in God, it's best to stay away from it. If you're going to have so many questions that it's going to turn into strife and discord and arguing, it's best stay away from it. And believe me, there are plenty of people who stay awake at night and they contact the uh, Mormon archives and they're trying to figure out where in the world they come from. And they're trying to get as much information as they can from there. But I, I think you'll get, you'd, be, you'd be better off getting more information from a horse than, than calling back down there. You say, why? Because of their beliefs. I mean, the Mormons have the idea that Jesus and Satan were half-brothers. And they believe that planet Earth is populated by, you know, individuals who are the direct product of Jesus' relationship with different women out there in the universe. That's why babies are born on planet Earth. And then they also teach that everybody who's darker complected like me are darker complected because Satan had a war in heaven. All of those who joined him and lost the war were forced or condemned to be born on planet Earth with dark skin. That's Mormonism. So if I'm looking to learn about my genealogy, why am I going to call back there? See? Why would you waste your time and do that? It is this kind of stuff that Paul is alluding to, even though these things happen hundreds of years later. Think about the Muslims. They, they still wrestle and argue over who comes from Muhammad, who's a descendant of his. You've probably seen in the Middle East, the Muslims, some of the men will wear black uh, caps on their head, and then some of the other men will wear white caps on their head. The black caps that they wear signify that they know they are direct descendants of the prophet Muhammad. The white caps just simply means they're clergy, but they're not connected to Muhammad in any bloodline type of a way. A lot of people in ancient times have put a lot of stock in that, and Paul said, stay away from that. If this is not going to increase your faith in the Lord, you avoid it as best you can. Go to the last chapter here in uh, 1 Timothy. Go to chapter 6. Let me show you something else. Look at verse 20. This will go with the verse we'll look at here in a little bit. Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Anything that's going to cause you to deviate from the truth you want to be very careful about that. And you can see what the uh, idea is. There are plenty of people in these times that love to use the word science. Well, the science says, I'm following the science. But then when you listen to these folks describe what the science was two and a half years ago compared to what the science is today, they'll say, well, we, we, only, we had to live according to what knowledge we had at the time, which shows you that science fluctuates, and, and the people who are using that information change their minds and their opinions. And Paul says you should avoid those things that are called science, falsely so-called. If it's going to affect your faith in God, if it's going to affect your trust and confidence in the veracity of this book, leave it alone. You say, well, some of these people are credible and they've gone to some good schools like Harvard, Brown, Yale. Who cares? 
cares? If they haven't, if they haven't studied in the school of Christ, what difference does it matter? Yeah, we've got to come back to what, what the book says. So returning to 1 Timothy 1, you can see in verse 5, it says, now the end of the commandment. Now what he's talking about here is what he said in verse 4. The end of this charge that I've given to you is love. Despite the fact that I've told you to avoid all of these different kinds of teachings and these people that are involved with that, you still have to walk in love. You do realize that, don't you? How many of you know you have to love Republicans? You do know that, right? How many of you know you got to love Democrats? I know that's an alien species around here, but you've you got to love Democrats too. You've got to love people that are in the Green Party. You've got to love people that are independent, regardless of whether or not you agree with what they're saying. Now, you do not have to allow their opinions, beliefs, and ideas to enter into your head. Your heart is fertile ground for the Word of God, and when someone is saying something or teaching something that you don't believe, you can hit the, the reject button. You don't have to accept that stuff. And, and allow your heart to be receptive soil for the truth of God's word. That's why I've never bought into the idea that a politician knows the Bible just because he quotes the scripture. They don't know anything about the Bible half the time. Just, just enough to be dangerous. So verse, verse 5 then, the end of all of this is love out of a pure heart, and we can have a pure heart by walking with God. One of the statements in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. The pure in heart can see God in just about every circumstance. The pure in heart. In the worst of circumstances, the pure in heart is saying, how can I see God at work in this terrible circumstance? person whose heart isn't pure, they won't see God. You'll spend six hours in your house cleaning it, doing everything you can to get it ready for guests, and then that one guest comes in and they go to that one corner you didn't get to because you couldn't reach it, and they see that one cobweb. See? But a person who, who, who's pure in heart, they look at your life, they look at your struggle, they look at your trials and your tragedies, and they're trying to figure out how God is conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. That's a pure heart. So verse, verse 5 again, of a good conscience. Now the, the conscience, of course, is that part of us that accuses us when we do wrong things. But it's also that part of us that excuses our behavior when we're doing what's right. See? The conscience is shaped and molded by the information put in it from a time you're a baby. It's shaped and molded by the people that are around you as you're being reared. And it's affected by the atmosphere and environment that you're being raised in or that you move to. Your conscience. And some people's conscience is very sensitive, very sensitive to the things of God. Paul speaks about folks who have a conscience that's seared with a hot iron. You know, seared as in the, the rancher who has cattle, and he takes a hot poker, and then he pushes, puts it on that livestock's flesh and sears it, and once he removes it, it's unchanging. It doesn't matter how big that uh, calf grows, you're going to be able to tell who it belongs to, and there's probably not going to be any kind of growth of any kind of hair or anything in that, simply because it's been seared, and that sign is in there. And some people have a conscience that is so marred by corruption 
that Paul says they're reprobate, incapable of distinguishing between what is right and what is wrong. Now, in the Old Testament, they say it this way. There'll be a people who call good evil and evil good. So things that we understand from Scripture are perverse. People today applaud and clap. Things that we find absolutely reprehensible only because the Bible teaches us that it's bad. Other people esteem and value and promote and popularize. But for us that walk with God, we are doing all of the things in verse 4 in order to preserve a pure heart and a good conscience. But we have to do this while we walk in love. While we walk in love. And... Uh, a faith that is unfeigned is a faith that is true, not a faith that is hypocritical, but a faith that is pure. Now, in verse 6, you can see he says, from such, from which some having swerved, swerved, that, that means they turned aside unto vain jangling. So we read 1 Timothy 6, where it talked about vain babblings and all of that. So empty, loose talk, words, conversation without meaning. That, that's what it's talking about. Things that, you know, it's possible for people to have a conversation and not really be saying anything. You probably had a few of those with people. Th this is why we have the word amusement. Because the word muse means to think, to meditate. If you put the, that, that I privative, that prefix on there, that means to not think. So a lot of the, the programs that come on television, they are designed to amuse us because we don't have to really think at all. We just see crazy people on, on television and they're just saying and doing any and everything. And it's not designed to teach anything like older programs used to have a principle they were trying to instill in those that were watching. But a lot of it now doesn't have anything to do with uh, helping prepare thinking people. But if, if a person does not adhere to scripture and they know God, then over a period of time, they'll swerve. So look at our nation. The nation was founded on principles related to scripture. And if I were to ask you where exactly was it that we started to swerve, all of us would have a different place where we think it probably occurred because just like a big ship that's in the ocean and making its way across the uh, waters, when, when it starts making that turn, most of the people on, on, on deck and on the ship can't even tell the ship is turning. See? And this is what happens here. The, they, they swerve, and, and then pretty soon we're moving in an entirely different direction, and we, and we never even knew that the captain was taking us in a different, different direction. Yeah, that, that's, that's certainly, certainly what happens. So today, of course, with regard to walking with God, uh, verse 6 says, people have turned unto vain words. Now, here, here's an interesting thought. If, you know, the last, we'll say, five or 6,000 years, people, for the most part, gave birth to babies at home. You know that? You do realize that, right? You, you are aware that there weren't hospitals like, like in, in years past like there are today. But if you attempt to give birth at home today 
in, in some states, they'll probably prosecute you for endangering the life of a child. Now, the only thing you're doing is what folks have been doing for 4,500 years or 5,000 years, but, but the laws and everything have designed it so that you can have children, you can give birth, but it has to be up under our supervision in a hospital in order for it to be right, or you'll be prosecuted, as I said, for endangering the life of a child. But then on, on the same line, you can take a baby. Some states want to wait till the baby is even born, and you can take the baby's life, and you won't be prosecuted for endangering the life of a child. They'll say it's a right to choose. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen or heard in your life. This is what we're talking about when we say people have swerved where we at one time were rational and could think. We've gone in an entirely different direction, and this is why so many people don't have faith in a book. They have faith in what they think is science, but they don't have faith in a book, not knowing that this book doesn't contradict science at all. Because I understand from Genesis 1, here's what the science says. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's the science. Another scientific statement, as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. As far as I can see from the scripture, farmers will always have a job as long as the earth remains. Yeah, there will never be a time there won't be farmers. There will be seed planted because seed is going to be continually reproduced by the vegetation that God has created. In the beginning, he made them male and female. That's the science. It doesn't matter if you come up with other kinds of terms and vocabulary, but when people swerve, they get caught up in this new stuff and they walk away from the verbiage of scripture and that's why they lose their faith in God. And this is why we have so many churches that have backslid, so many denominations that are splitting because they can't figure out what's true and what's false. And all we have to do is look at the book. So verse 7 says these individuals desiring to be teachers of the law. What law? Moses' law. Old Testament texts. They want to be teachers, but they don't understand what they say or what they affirm. Now you tell me that's not today. See? Yeah. Plenty of people today are teaching the scriptures and are entirely unqualified. Unqualified spiritually, unqualified educationally. They're not even emotionally invested in the Bible to believe it. Again, desiring to be teachers of the law, they don't understand what they say or what they affirm. Now, James tells us in his epistle that everybody shouldn't want to be a teacher because they're going to receive the greater judgment. The person who stands up here with this book and tells people how to live should live what they're telling people. Yeah. And, and people who want to lead Bible studies and, and preach the gospel and do all of these different things and hold the Bible up as, a, as the standard of truth and righteousness, I can tell you right now, God's got, he's going to have some special time for people that are leading people astray. Yeah. And we have to be very careful about how we, how we prepare ourselves. But if there's a teacher who's teaching the Bible who doesn't understand it, then that's a confused man or woman. Then confusion becomes a seed that's sown in the hearts of other people. So a confused preacher will produce 
confused people. See, that's, that's, that's what happens. And sometimes you'll see it this way. Here's a person who believes the Bible, understands it to be true, inspired, infallible, inerrant. However, he's preaching to people who don't believe that. And since they don't believe that, he dare not ever let them know that he really believes that. Or they'll attack him and throw him out of the church. Yeah, but, you know, we're supposed to be a manifestation of the truth. What you believe as a Christian should be manifested through your conversation and by how you live. You are not called to be a hypocrite. God didn't call you to be an actor. And he doesn't want you to be a chameleon changing your colors in every group that you're with. He wants you to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. That's what he desires. So look at that one more time. Verse 7. They desire to be teachers, they lack understanding, and they don't even know what they are affirming. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Well, you don't have to be afraid of Moses' law. From Genesis to Malachi, we'll call all of that the law, the writings, and the prophets. The law traditionally meant the first five books of the Bible. And if you think about it this way, the first five books contain the history of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Gives you the history of Israel, gives you their patterns of worship, their travels, and then everything after those five books are usually commentary on the children of Israel, commentary on some aspect of the law. And this is what the prophets were constantly dealing with and calling the people back to serving God. Over and over, the prophets reminded them, God brought you out of Egypt. Why are you forgotten that? Why are you going after idols? And the Gospels, of course, tell us the story of Jesus, but everything other than the Gospels in the book of Acts are just commentary on those books to help us understand our redemption and what Paul was doing when he was planting those churches along with Peter. So the law is never uh, described as something that's terrible or evil, but the law is good if you lose it, use it lawfully, but the law isn't good if you don't use it the right way. So look at verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Yeah, but for the lawless and disobedient. Those signs that you see on the highway when you're driving down the road that says 65 mile per hour, they didn't write those signs for me. They wrote those signs, they made those signs for you. Because if they didn't produce those signs, you'd be going faster than that. That's exactly what happened when... When they put stop signs and street lights in different places, all of that's for these people who do not want to stop and let somebody else go by. Yeah. So the law wasn't made for the righteous man, but the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, for murders, fathers, murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers. So let's, let's look at that then. What is a lawless person? A person who doesn't believe in any kind of restraints or limitations on their behavior. What is the law given to? Curb bad behavior. Every time you look up, they're trying to create some new law. 
if someone goes out and shoots somebody, they want a new law. And it's going to say this about handguns or this about how old somebody should be to have it. The laws aren't for you and for me. It's for people who are getting themselves in trouble and harming other people. The problem is once the laws are enacted, then it affects all of us. You see, that's the problem. Lawless people. Where is the lawless world today? Go to Chicago. Go to Memphis, Tennessee. You find lawlessness. Look at what's going on in New York where you've got people running around subways stabbing people and along the streets slashing people and nobody even arrest anybody. Police that won't even take the time to arrest people because they know as soon as they arrest them, charge them, then the lawyers are going to turn around, give them bond, and they'll be back out in a few hours. What's the whole point then, see? If the law is designed to curb bad behavior, as Paul is saying here, then the law should be used to deal with that bad behavior. Someone said one time, and I think it's, yeah, it's down in Mississippi where some actors out of California and Hollywood, they're suing this big prison called Parchment. One of the biggest prisons in the South. I mean, just pretty, pretty bad place down there. But they're suing because they say the conditions aren't the best for the people that are, that are there. And they, I mean, now look, they get three square meals. They get to go to college for free. Uh, these folks get to, uh, oh my, they got beautiful showers and everything's lovely for them. Nevertheless, you got people say it's still not right for them because they don't have all of the modern conveniences that we have on the outside. Well, it is called prison. And, and it's not supposed to be a place that you want to stay in, okay? However, they, they had a riot down there not too long ago, and uh, Tiff's got a relative that works over there, was telling us this, this story. And, and th they took all of these prisoners and had to send them down in Louisiana to Angola. Now, I've been to Angola prison and, and preached in there. That's a bad place, too. But in Angola, it was one of these prisons where if you walk into the showers, you could hit the button to turn on the water. They didn't have knobs. You know, they're so sophisticated down there. Hit the button, and then the hot water comes on, cold water and everything. And just really technologically advanced in the way that they had their system. But those folks from Parchment came there, and after 30 days, the folks in Angola had to tell the other prison, you get these folks out of here because they're destroying this place. Listen, you, you can change a person's environment, but if you don't change their character, they'll destroy no matter what you buy. Yeah. Neighborhood I was raised in in Cleveland, Ohio, the councilman was kind enough to, to get us a brand new park placed right there in our area, just maybe five blocks from where I was. It didn't take but one summer for them kids to destroy that thing. You've got to change people's character. If you don't change their character, it's not going to change anything at all. So 1 Timothy 1, in verse number 9 here, where it says, the lawless, that's what it's talking about. People disobedient to the law, people who don't believe in the law, disobedient people. They know the law exists, but they're going to do their own thing. The ungodly, people who not only don't care about the law and don't care about being disobedient, they don't believe there's a God. And not believing there's a God, of course they're going to be ungodly in the way they conduct themselves. Then it says sinners. It's all, these are all synonyms, describing basically the same kind of people. Sinful folks who live their lives in transgression of the commandments of God. 
I know this is what God has told us not to do, but because we're told not to do it in the book, I think we should do it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if God says a man ought to be with a woman, the ungodly world says, I don't see anything wrong with a guy having a guy friend. See? And I don't see anything wrong with a lady having a significant other that is a lady. That's because that's disobedient. And that's because it's ungodly and because it's sinful. But it's a mentality that has followed all of the things of verse 4. Fables and genealogies and things that evoke questions without any genuine answers. So people will say things like this. Well, there can't really be any truth. I mean, who knows what really is true in the world after all? I mean, there are a lot of religions. There are a lot of gods. What makes you think your God is the only God? Well, my Bible says that. Well, the other folks' religious books say that too. Yeah, but the other folks' religious books weren't here before the Bible was. And they weren't here before Adam and Eve. And there's a reason so many of the other books have some kind of tie-in to the story of the Old Testament. Because when Noah and his family got off the ark, the only religion and relationship anybody had with deity was with the one true God. But within a few generations, there was such apostasy, Noah lived to see his great-grandchildren and other seed turning away from God. Pretty soon, it's going different directions, other religions come about, and here we are today. So in verse 9 again, unholy, profane. What's an unholy person? A person that doesn't care about any kind of separation from the things of this world, profane. We use the word profanity. Murderers of fathers and mothers. Why would anybody want to kill somebody's parents? Why would somebody want to kill their own parents? There's something in that person that would lead them to do that. Barring you've got a super abusive parent, why in the world would anybody just go out here and indiscriminately start taking the lives of people? Shooting folks, raping folks, serial killers, devouring flesh, that kind of a thing. And he talks about manslayers, which again has to deal with taking the life of people. Paul continues this thought in verse 10, and he describes people who are fornicating. Now that, that old word there, whoremongers, that's just... Uh, a word that's describing people that are busy outside of wedlock. But you can find some people who are in wedlock and will get involved with adultery. But Vegas, Las Vegas, Nevada, I should say, prostitution is legal there. Just because it's legal there, it's not acceptable in the kingdom of God. You understand that? Yeah. Just because a, a government institution legitimizes something, that God says is a sin, it's still a sin for you and for me, regardless of what masses of people say. Well, Pastor Darrell, I don't particularly see anything wrong with it. Well, God wasn't particularly thinking about your opinion when he wrote this. <laughs> see? Right. I mean, this, this is, this is how, how, how this works. He says, for them that defile themselves with mankind. That's Romans 1. That's Romans 1. Paul is saying to Timothy, you have been left in Ephesus, a place where the goddess Diana 
is worship where there is an extremely strong feminine spirit where there's a relativism and pluralism that knows no bounds because the Greco-Roman religions had all kinds of cults and shrines to fornication and all kinds of iniquity. He says, you need to know that people who defile themselves with mankind, that's not good. It's not good. Do you realize that the ancient Greeks should say some of the ancient Greeks promoted male-boy relationships and wrote books approving it and endorsing it and sometimes encouraging it. Do you realize it was the same amongst the Romans? They had plenty of people that believed in that. This is why in America we have a group called NAMBLA. That National Association for the Man-Boy Love, you know, relationship and all of that. They want to promote those aspects of ancient history that will corrupt our nation and destroy us. And the way it works, it works like this. People will go to the congressman in the state legislature and they'll say, I think some of our laws are archaic. And we need to get rid of these. They'll say, well, which laws do you think we need to get rid of? The Romeo and Juliet laws. I mean, why do we have to have a standard that says a child has to reach a certain age before they reach the age of consent or before they can be married? And we have laws that have been put in force that permits in some states 14 or 15 year old boy to have a relationship with a, a man, a full grown man, and people don't see anything wrong with it. I'm telling you right here, folks, it's in verse 10 for them that defile themselves with mankind. It's a sin. This is wrong. For men stealers, people kidnapping, folks, see? Kidnapping people a long time. This happened in ancient times. Liars, people don't tell the truth. Perjured persons, people who've been known to not tell the truth. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, that opens it up and expands it even further. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now he has given us all of this stuff that's negative in order to set it in contrast with the glorious gospel. Now what is the gospel? That we were incapable and unable to do anything to affect redemption or salvation on our own. But God, having already predetermined that his son would come into this world and die in our place and secure our eternity, we believe on him. And once we came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were washed of all of our sins. And any person who learns the facts of redemption and understands the glorious gospel, their life starts all over again. And this is what Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand. Preach this to the Ephesians because they've heard for centuries about all of this other stuff with Diana and the Greek and Roman gods. So this is all new to them. Their minds have become virgin soil. If you preach this, they'll scratch their heads trying to figure out what it all means. But the spirit of God will work on their hearts and produce conviction, and bring repentance, and regeneration. And he calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
Now we know from 2 Corinthians there is such a thing as a false gospel and a false salvation and false preaching. But here we have a glorious gospel and Paul says it was committed to my trust. If it was committed to his, it's committed to ours. What are we going to do with the truth of God's word? When I hear people trying to describe what they believe to be right and wrong about what's in the book, but they're using the book to justify things that are ungodly, the only thing I can do is shake my head and realize that wasn't the gospel committed to our trust. You can fabricate gospel. You can manufacture a form of good news, but it's not going to be good news according to this, this book right here. It has to meet the standard of scripture. And whenever people start twisting the words of Paul, Peter, and John, and James, and Jude, there has to be an agenda. There has to be an agenda. There was an agenda in Paul's day, and there's an agenda today. And what Paul told Timothy in the first century is important for us in the 21st century. We don't live in ancient Ephesus, but we do live here in the United States of America, and I can tell you there's a lot of stuff that's similar. I think I may have told you many, many years ago when we first came out here, there was a fellowship in this county that had a, brought a guest speaker, I think out of Kearney, if I'm not mistaken, and this guest speaker, um, I can remember because we got a flyer here at the church and, and wanted us to invite some of the ladies to the church, and I just threw the thing in the trash, never even mentioned it uh, in any of the meetings. But, but later on, I found out this lady come from Kearney, and she was introducing these people to Diana. And, and in the church, she had set up these candles, almost in like a, a pentagram, and, and these people were praying to the four corners, different places, and, and they took communion with wafers and honey. I'll never forget that long as I live in this county. And, and I thought to myself, why in the world would this lady be given a place in a church? But then I had to think, why would anybody in that church invite her? See, there had to be, had to be folks in there. See, they believed that in order to embrace that. And, and genuinely, generally, when you, when you find false doctrine and it comes into a place, you usually have a handful of people that believe that. But, but there is a way to help people, you know, out of that and, and get them out of that so that it won't be in the, in the church here. We, we had years ago somebody who would come here. We had one of the Tuesday night Bible studies. And so afterwards I was talking in the back with somebody and they were explaining to me that when the scripture says that Cain was of that wicked one, that that means that in the garden that Eve literally had physical intercourse with the snake. And, and so they were saying that is what that meant, that Cain was born from that. Now, uh, aside from the physical issues there, that, that a snake and a woman not going to produce a man, certainly not a male child, as they were telling me this, I could tell they really believed this. And so as we were talking, we were just, I was just easing them right on over there closer to that door 
and, and we uh, opened up the door, we got outside, and I just explained to the gentleman very kindly and politely that somewhere on this planet, there's probably somebody that believes what you're saying, but they're not inside this door, and so you'd probably be happier in another place. And I'm sure somewhere uh, that doctrine is being taught in another fellowship. But folks, listen, Paul says we got to be careful about what we allow in this head so that we don't swerve towards something that's untrue. Amen. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We are so grateful that your word is true. It is clear. And as we have looked into the scriptures this evening, you have said a lot to us. More than anything else, you built us up on our most holy faith. So continue to lead us and guide us in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen.